Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me is my colleague, Niklas Savos. How has the summer been for you, Niklas? It was a great summer. I actually had some time to relax and spend time, a lot of time with my daughter. And, and uh, yeah, I had some, some uh, time in Greece, in Crete, which was very good. Um, but the, the weather was a bit too good. It was too hot. Yeah, it's been a warm summer. I uh, stayed in Sweden this year, actually. I usually travel, but um, it's been nice. I've been reading a lot and we've been launching the podcast, which has been really fun. But it's also good to be back in the studio and now record some new episodes here for the fall. Uh, today, we're delighted to have two guests from Diamond Hill Capital Management, an Ohio-based investment firm with about 30 billion US dollars of assets under management. And we are fortunate to be joined by both Heather Brilliant, she's the CEO and president of the company, and also Krishna Mohanrai, and he's the portfolio manager of the International Equity Fund. And the starting point of our conversation today is uh, the book Why Moats Matter that Heather Brilliant co-authored in 2014 when she was the CEO of Morningstar Australasia. And to us and many investors, this is a classic, but uh, for those who don't know, what is this uh, book about, Niklas? So the first book, the first part of the book is about Morningstar's framework for investing, while the second is how they apply the framework to different industries. And uh, I would say the book basically answers two key questions. One, how can we identify a great business? And two, when should we buy that business to maximize our return? And as the title suggests, the book is about moats, also referred to as barriers to entry. Um, And the term moat was popularized by Warren Buffett and is a core principle of Morningstar's equity research process. But Eddie, what is a moat? Yeah, for people not familiar with the concept of moats in in this business context and who might be thinking of the water-filled trenches that are protecting medieval castles from invaders. Well, in this case, you can easily uh, replace the castle by a company and the potential invaders by competitors. Uh, but the question is, which kind of economic moats a company can have to protect themselves? And in the book Morningstar, they list five sources of different moats. It's uh, cost advantages, it's intangible assets, it's uh, switching costs, efficient scale, and network effects. And Morningstar also uh, rate companies depending on the kind of moats that they judge they have. They have three different ones, and one is Uh, companies that have no moat, no durable competitive advantage, and no long-term staying power. The second one is companies that they think have a narrow moat, and that are that is companies that have a competitive advantage um, and are likely to provide excess returns for investors for the next 10 years. And then they also have a third one, uh, wide moats, which uh, is companies that they believe can uh, provide excess returns for 20 years, but that is very rare. So the book also has one chapter about the trends, how these competitive advantages are increased or decreased. Uh, It's also covering stewardship, like capital allocation and the managers, who are they and how are they uh, treating the company, and uh, also about valuation and portfolio strategy and so on. So, but from the framework of Red Eye Quality Rating, what uh, will today's episode focus on? We will discuss both how a mode can show up in the numbers, Um, but as well from studying the characteristics of the business and the industry. So it's important to look at both parts, as an emerging mode can be shown in the qualitative side, but not yet show up in the numbers. And I mean, on the the business side, uh, so 
as you know, the Red Eye rating is based on business, financial, and people. And on, on business, we have questions regarding moats, which is how competitive the industry is, threats of substitutes, identifiable moat, and if the market share is growing. Um, on the financial side, we focus on the return on capital over the cost of capital, as well as if the business have high and stable margins. All right. And the last part in our rating is the people. Is there something there? Yeah. So people itself um, doesn't constitute as a moat um, in terms of how Morningstar sees it. And But I mean, by allocating capital in a good way, you can, you can widen the moat and vice versa. So, um, I mean, depending on the actions of management, they can either strengthen the moat or weaken it. Perfect. And we'll talk a lot about more about moats in this episode where we discuss it with Heather Brilliant and Krishna Mohanrai. Heather and Krishna, welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. Yeah, so just to start off, Heather, you've been more than 10 years at Morningstar. You worked at First State Investments, and now you are CEO of Diamond Hill Capital Management. That's so what right. has this, yeah, what has this like transition meant for you both personally and, and uh, professionally? And how do you feel about everything right now? Uh, well, from a transition standpoint, this is definitely the most challenging, rewarding and exciting opportunity I've ever had. Um, you know, my prior roles, I was really heading up a division or an area of a larger company. And this is this is my first um, role being the ultimate CEO and having kind of ultimate accountability. It's a lot of pressure, but it's a lot of autonomy, too. And I love it. I think Diamond Hill is just a really unique company in our industry. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. But it's been a really, really amazing opportunity. Yeah, and, and Krishna, what is your background and current role at Diamond Hill? Uh, yes, uh, I co-manage the uh, international strategy at Diamond Hill. Um, we are uh, coming up on the fifth anniversary of the strategy, so super excited about what we're building here. Um, I remember I joined Diamond Hill uh, almost 10 years ago now, um, which was when the firm uh, just had just started uh, investing in their international capability. And I had moved back from London to take up this job. You know, you asked for my background. It's been, um, I would say, kind of a circuitous path for me to get to investing. Uh, I have a very quantitative background. Uh, I was trained as an engineer uh, in operations research. So, which basically means uh, using optimization algorithms in supply chain and logistics. So, very different background from fundamental investing. Um, Somewhere along the line, you know, I got my CFA. I, uh, given the math background, I worked for a quant, uh, worked for a while as a quant, but never really uh, enjoyed it. Uh, I think I'd overdosed on quant, and uh, of course, like many other people, came across Buffett letters and started reading. I, I don't know exactly when, but it kind of turned into an obsession, uh, fundamental investing, and um, it it felt to me like, you know, this. Uh, there's, there's a lot of subtlety to fundamental investing that, uh, as a quant, at least I didn't perceive it. As a quant, it felt like, you know, you're building weapons to go to fight every day, like in a, in a sort of zero-sum game. But value investing and this mindset of fundamental long-term investing seem more like a slow sort of a learning journey um, rather than, you know, a, com- a competition on a daily basis, right? So completely different mindset. Uh, and I have to say thinking long-term is a lot less stressful. Uh, and it's way more productive. So 
that's I think kind of when I decided this is the only thing I wanted to do. So so here I am. So it seems like your investing style is really fundamentally driven. How would you describe your your style? Um, I, I would say I mean it's changed. Uh, I, it's changed over time. Uh, I think when I started, I, I remember I was in London Business School. I I um, I I had this course called Value Investing, which was taught by uh, um, Eddie Ramston, who was a professor who used to teach in Columbia's Value Investing uh, School. He had just moved to the UK, his native UK, and he started the course there. So I got lucky. I did that class, and that class was very much uh, based on the Greenblatt uh, style of investing, you know, like finding um, uh, overlooked situations, uh, you know, spinoffs, you know, that, you know, like, Stuff that's not, that's maybe not on the front page uh, of the journal, but you know, like in the tenth page hidden somewhere, right? Uh, so initially, at least, I had a sense of finding opportunities, capitalizing on them, uh, and I thought that was the idea of a good stock pick. But I think over time, I've become more um, more interested in where do I place my money and my clients' money for the long term, rather than you know just finding ideas. Uh, there's a little bit of both, so it's not one or the other, but I think that's just the mindset of, uh, I would call it kind of more like a collector's mindset. Uh, uh, see, I, I, I want to collect uh, 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 and sort of curate a portfolio of businesses that I think I would want to place my money in for the very, very long term. So that's maybe a subtle shift in how my thinking has changed over the years. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I've done more or less the same journey myself. So it, it's interesting to hear. Uh, but I mean, the thing that is really hard with investing is all these biases. And uh, I mean, how, how how do you deal with biases and which biases are, are most maybe prominent in your investing life? Uh, I feel <laughs> like, you know, sometimes I feel like I have every bias in the book, like, you know, you, you go through that list. I'm like, oh yeah, I've done that. I've done that. It's, it's, uh, uh, and I think in our context, and I guess in the investing context, um, most of the biases have to do with how you process information. Right. And, and, and the issue is there's just so much information. Um, and I'm saying quote unquote information. Uh, so you, if I had to pick a few, I would say nearness bias is big, you know, there's a tendency to just overweight what I just heard, and I, I can I'm aware of it, but you know it still makes a difference. Um, availability bias, of course, which is uh, you know the more something is available, I, I tend to em em emphasize it. So aware of that, confirmation bias is big. I think a lot of people, uh, and, and I, I find this like I, I get a thought in my head, and then somehow I seem to have a penchant for finding really nice articles that align with that new thought in my head, right? So all of that happened all the time. It's. <clears throat> uh, I actually think confirmation bias is the most dangerous bias in investing because you have to be able to look for disconfirming evidence and to be able to incorporate it in a way that can, you know, help you still understand what your thesis is or how, how the world can fit together with this new information. But if you purposely fit the information to the story that you're telling yourself, as Krishna was describing, then I think that's just the biggest trap in 
um, you know, sticking to sticking to a loser or, um, you know, riding a position for longer than you should and things like that. Yeah. Is that something you work with uh, actively at Diamond Hill? Like to how to deal with the biases? Uh, you mean from uh, as, a, as a group? Right? Yeah, like in a group. And if you discuss it uh, among the different fund managers or if that's something that you work with Heather to... Yeah, group together. Uh, so we have, uh, you know, within our team, so in international, we are a team of five and we work very closely together. Um, so pretty much every idea, every thought is discussed uh, either over email or at least once over uh, once a week. Uh, so there's, we try to play devil's advocate. Um, and the other thing we do, I think we do very well is uh, when one analyst has an idea, you know, like, um, it's more than likely that all information that seems interesting, pro and con, when somebody else finds it, they will send it across. Like, And there is no, I would say, um, I've been in other places where if an analyst has a positive view and you're a peer uh, or it, it doesn't feel comfortable sending a negative view across to the whole group. But in our team, I think we've set it up in such a way that nobody, um, nobody feels it as an attack on your idea, like it's just an incremental uh, addition, and and I think it also goes back to the framework of it's not an idea. It's not that you want to get into an idea, make money, and get out, right? It's more like how long do we own, want to own this position, and up to what what uh, valuations we are willing to hold this position, and uh, and if everything goes well, we want to hold it for a very long time, and if you want to hold something for a very long time, you have to keep checking. Uh, if your original thesis is right, is things are things changing? Is it sustainable to maintain that position in the portfolio? I think that mindset um, helps you kind of at least uh, be open to uh, the anti view, if you will, right? Um, but I, I would say across the across our investment team too, I have been really impressed with um, people's willingness to acknowledge, you know, disconfirming data, and I do think it's something that. We try to reinforce with our culture. So one of our one of the key tenets of our culture is curiosity. And I think if you are constantly curious about how new information fits in and try to stay open minded instead of just trying to fit it to a story, that um, kind of learning mentality can really be a great counter to a confirmation bias risk. Yeah, that's right. You know, Chuck uh, Bather, uh, a most senior portfolio manager. If you hear him talk, it he. Uh, He's always bringing in the the contra view, right? He's always, I mean, he might have be holding the position, he might be adding to the position, but he's like, this is what I'm worried about, and this could go against it, and blah blah blah. You know, it's it's not, it's never, hey, this is my idea and it's going to work because he's just seen the cycles uh, of, of ideas and how they work. So, um, but I think uh, one thing Heather mentioned in terms of seeking um, contrary input, I feel like it's become super important to filter what you consume, right? Just like what you consume as uh, what you consume as food, it's almost in a similar way, what you consume as information is extremely important to your health, you know, whether it's uh, in just in the investing context or even broadly uh, in, in life context, it's become the number one thing. And so that's something we always keep thinking about. I'm always changing the kind of sell-side research I view. Uh, um, we don't read as much sell-side research, but sometimes it just pops in your inbox and you have a tendency to look and each 
each one of those looks takes up your attention and there is a you know i forget what the uh, i think cal newport uh, in his book he had a, he had a good point there that each 10 second uh, change in attention can actually be can actually cost you way more than that 10 seconds so you know very very be very mindful of how you spend your time um the other things i think is uh, uh i find that having an intrinsic value based investing approach is really good because you might be getting a lot of new uh, short term information but ultimately we're tied to that intrinsic value estimate and that estimate doesn't change that much right so um if i if the headline today says that you know the beer market or the hard sells market is uh, down xyz percent last week it's a negative to a beer thesis um but it doesn't really move the intrinsic value estimate much so i you know in that extent the behavior of the team is is somewhat smooth smoother than the information that comes in um that's one thing and the second thing and 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 i think it's sort of a personal philosophy and i think it's a team philosophy too in international and maybe across the board is gradualism in most of what we do uh, so the decision making is not abrupt um Uh, I'll give an example. Let's say earn, you have earnings come out for a company this morning, uh, and for whatever reason the stock is down ten percent. More likely than not, we wouldn't be adding to the position this morning, right? Um, yeah, it's more likely that we would want to listen to everything the company has put out. We would want to listen to everything the peer or the competition uh, is putting out this earnings season. We would want to wait a week. uh before we have a full understanding of what the reaction was why there was a reaction how does our long term estimate and intrinsic value changes then we might add or we may not add but it's just that in the emotion of the moment we're not making a big decision um that i think that gradualism helps too when it comes to biases uh, at least it gives us the time to uh, to be aware of what bias we might be having right and we'll get back to the investing philosophy at diamond hill a bit later but uh, this is investing by the books uh, podcast we usually have one book as a starting point and uh, the one for this week is uh, the book you co-authored Heather why moats matter and came out 2014 when you worked for morningstar and we were a bit curious uh, how morning like why did morningstar decided to put their mythology into a book and what was your role in this uh, project sure Um actually Morningstar has put its equity research methodology into a book uh, multiple times and Why Moats Matter is the most recent publication that kind of outlines the philosophy but the philosophy was first outlined in a couple of books um a decade or more ago and um this is the first time that I was involved in working on this project and it was really an a wonderful opportunity because At the time that we wrote the book, I was leading Morningstar's equity research team, and I wanted the book to be the opportunity for the team to share their insights, which are clearly much deeper when it gets down to specific industries and sectors and companies on which they have insights around economic moats. But um, clearly, we needed a we needed to reevaluate and uh, re um, rearticulate the framework in order to to kind of bring everything together. So um I did I wrote the first chapter of the book and was kind of leading the effort to coordinate um multiple contributors across the team and um every other piece of the book 
was really written by someone from the team. Um, the second chapter was written by Elizabeth, who at the time was the head of the U.S. research team. So I was the global head of the team, and she was heading the U.S. Um, I think she's still with Morningstar, actually, but she's moved on to a different role at this point. So Interesting. And uh, I mean, part one of the book covers the framework of Morningstar's philosophy centered on economic modes. Uh, and while you, as you said, you cover modes in different industries and uh, and sectors in the second part. Uh, can you just, for, for our listeners, um, I mean, how do you define a moat? And uh, can you elaborate on the, on the major sources that you outlined in the book? Sure. So first of all, a moat really at its essence is the, a company's ability to earn returns on capital in excess of the cost of capital for long periods of time into the future. Uh, some people equivalent moat to a sustainable competitive advantage. And so that's kind of, I think, the easiest way to think about it and the most direct. But one thing that um, Morningstar always focused on in thinking about companies with moats that I think has been just a very foundational part of how I think about analyzing companies and competitive advantage is that a, a moat must be a structural element of the business. So you can have positive contributions to a company's competitive advantage from things like culture or management, but fundamentally there has to be a structural element to to a competitive advantage. And so at Morningstar, we kind of articulated that into five particular categories um, under which a company could earn a competitive advantage. There's a cost advantage, which is pretty straightforward. That's, you know, can you produce a good or service at a lower cost than your competitors? Um, intangible assets, which are usually things like brands, patents, or a regulatory regime that protects your ability for some period of time to earn excess returns. Um, switching costs, and you know, switching costs really used to apply um, very heavily to kind of old school technology companies like Oracle or SAP. And now I would say there's there's kind of a, a merging between switching costs and network effect. Um, network effect is the the fourth moat source, and network effect is really about um, the the value of a business becoming greater as there are more users on both sides, and that is where I think there has been the biggest change in terms of competitive advantage analysis and the markets and and what's going on. But we can talk more about that. Uh, the final moat source is um, what we call efficient scale. And this is a moat source. This book is the only place, um, the only book where Morningstar talks about efficient scale, because um, as we were writing the book and really thinking about our methodology, we really felt like there was a category of competitive advantage that wasn't well captured in the other sources that we had articulated. And so um, we, it, it was very challenging to come up with what to call it, because when people hear efficient scale, they think scale. But actually, the scale of a business generally leads to a cost advantage. So that really goes into the first source. Efficient scale really refers to this concept that there are some markets that are really not large enough to support the addition of another competitor. And so when you have that circumstance, um, that's when we call it efficient scale. So it could be like um, a pipeline where adding another pipeline would make both completely uneconomical. Um, pipelines have other sources of advantage too, regulatory approvals, et cetera. But um, importantly, I think that they own a market that really is not profitable for, for another entrant to come into. Yeah, it's a niche that they dominate. Exactly. And ha has your view on moats uh, changed after you, you uh, wrote the book? 
I mean, I'd say the biggest change, as I kind of alluded to, is that um, network effect used to be the most rare source of competitive advantage. And um, we had done, you know, over the the decade or so that I was working with the, the research team at Morningstar, we had done some studies on the frequency or prevalence of different moat sources. And network effect was consistently the hardest to find source, but also the one that led to the greatest outsized future returns when you found it. Well, I think everyone's figured that out now. And <laughs> and we see the market dominated by these businesses that benefit from network effect. Um, also, for as long as, as I have been thinking about competitive advantage, technology in its various forms has always had the ability to really completely upend the way competitive advantage works in a particular industry. And I think what you've really seen over the last you know five plus years is the the network effect advantage upending the technology industry itself, um, and that's partially driven by you know everything moving to the cloud and software as a service, but it's also really driven by uh, this new level of connection that happens online. And um, I think you know when when we all think back to our childhoods where you know there was barely even email and there was certainly no ability to Google the answer to everything you want to know, um, that it, it's just it's hard to really imagine when you take a step back how much has changed both in terms of the overall economy as well as in terms of the sources of companies competitive advantage um, one other thing i'd say that i would say my thinking has evolved on and um, this is a little bit a little bit funny given my current role but i i do think that i have increasingly placed more emphasis in my own mind on the importance of management in terms of uh, making great capital allocation decisions and influencing the culture of the organization, which and, and really identifying talent and hiring the right people. I think those are the contributions that management can make to enhancing a moat. I still think there needs to be a structural component, but you know, now as, as management, I would like to say that I would have some ability to influence our future competitive advantage. <laughs> But I, yeah, I, I know that um, other people think that um, corporate culture is actually a moat. So it's it's a bit, uh, I mean, some investors think that. I mean, Buffett thinks that. Buffett has has made comments to that effect. And so and that was one area where we always consciously differed from from kind of Buffett's moat methodology. And um, I think it's partially because it's very hard to identify or explain a culture related advantage in any structural way. And, and also it can be very fleeting. Culture can really depend on a few key individuals. And so if your if your moat can walk out the door, then Morningstar doesn't consider it a moat. Yeah, uh, that's something we read about in uh, Jim Collins' great book, uh, where he talks about this time tellers and clock builders, which is really uh, interesting with the time tellers being like Kodak or those kind of companies where the the CEO is really knows the future and they're that's one person who knows the future but they don't build it structurally like a clock so it, it doesn't last for long. Yeah, I and know, we did, I think that's a, a great way to to think about it or put a framework around it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so how do you use moats at uh, Diamond Hill? Is that something you have brought with you? Well, I would say it's something that was well established before I got here and um, it's funny, you know, in preparing for this podcast, since this book is, um, you know, seven years old at this point, I was rereading the first chapter and thinking about how much alignment there is between, you know, the way Morningstar has articulated its investment philosophy in this book and the way we think about investing at Diamond Hill. And um, I'd say um, 
probably a Diamond Hill would put um, the intrinsic value estimate or the valuation maybe above the competitive advantage analysis in terms of maybe even the order of operations. But ultimately, I think that there's a fundamental agreement that the best investment opportunities are comprised of companies with sustainable competitive advantages trading at a discount to their intrinsic value. And so fundamentally, I think we really are um, very aligned. I don't know, Krishna, if you want to add to anything about the the Diamond Hill philosophy in comparison. Yeah, yeah sure. I, I, yeah, before that, I just want to comment on the management uh, mode question because I thought it was very interesting. Uh, Heather, you brought it up. Uh, you know, I, I, I know Buffett has. Uh, there's this Buffett quote: "When a bad business meets a, a good manager, it's the reputation of the business that survives." Uh, I, I guess he's making the point that the business is more important than management. But I disagree. Just just using Buffett's example, right? He meets Berkshire Hathaway, which is a, you know, a terrible, terrible textile business. And look what he's done with it in like, you know, in, in this time. It's just, you cannot simply say that uh, moat is the only thing that matters and management doesn't. Um, if you have exceptional management, uh, it makes a huge, huge difference. I think even in our portfolio companies, we worry a lot about management change um, because, a lot of the investment case sometimes is based on the history of management. Um, uh, one you know, recent example is uh, HDFC Bank in India, which we've owned for a while. The CEO is, uh, is I guess, I think you guys mentioned the term intelligent fanatic. He probably would uh, fall in that category. He founded the bank, um, I think, in, the, in 1994, uh, if I'm getting it right. So it's almost uh, close to 30 years of history of building a bank in India from scratch to be the best run bank uh, in the country. Uh, and I would say one of the best run banks you'll ever come across. You just have to look at the numbers over the 30 year period in terms of loan growth, uh, underwriting uh, across that time. It's so hard to, to create a culture that is both risk covers and entrepreneurial, right? Because when you're building a financials business, uh, if you incentivize selling too much, uh, it it comes back to bite you every time the cycle turns. Uh, it's just, it's just uh, every bank, uh, the history of every every banking cycle. You'll you'll know who's been uh, who's been uh, um, uh, too exuberant in lending, right? So they've been able to they've been able to build it. And he retired, I think, uh, nineteen in twenty. So that CEO transition was something that naturally I was concerned about. But uh, the new guy comes in and. One of the first things he did was uh, he talked about changing the entire tech stack, uh, almost creating a separate tech stack for HDFC Bank from scratch, parallel to what was going on. So he was trying to reinvent and break uh, the technology of the bank, uh, knowing fully well that's the biggest threat for the bank is tech, right? Uh, that mindset of uh, investing for the future, investing a 10-year, 20-year horizon, seems to be sort of embedded uh, in the in the banking culture uh, across the management team. So you could say it's management or culture, but I mean, I guess it's semantic whether it's part of the mode or not, but it's important. And I guess that's the big point. Uh, and then I guess in terms of how we use modes in Diamond Hill, uh, yeah, to Heather's point, yeah, it's, it's pretty much looking for sustainable competitive advantage but at the same time worrying about what we pay for it. Um, I would say this, I think uh, 
over the years i've realized the concept of moats uh, can be a little can be subtle uh, you know it's it's really not the well known moats that are going to make you money it's it's really understanding the subtlety of where exactly the moat is coming from and how it's or rather where is the limit of that moat right that you don't uh, understand easily uh, and you cannot just get it from a sell side report or um it it just takes a while to be able to put your finger on uh, where that uh, where the limit of the moat is and i think as an as an investor you're more worried about making sure you truly understand uh, so i can classify a moat as uh, you know one or typically two or three categories uh, the moat might fall in but but does it stop at the border of the market they're operating in can they extend that moat to a new market those kind of questions Uh, are diff- are are harder to answer, and uh, sometimes you need to drill deeper and maybe just stay with the company for a while before you can understand it. Um, I'll give you an example from the portfolio. We own a company called Howden Joinery in the UK. Um, it's a they provide trade kitchens, which means uh, they sell kitchen remodel uh, products to tradespeople. So if you wanted to get your kitchen remodel and you went to them. they won't sell it to you as an end customer they'll they'll ask you to go and find a contractor or they'll suggest a trades person who can then go to them on your behalf so that's the business model um um it's pretty easy to see that they have a moat okay so all you have to see is you can see the high gross margins you can see high returns on investment uh, invested capital you can see stable to increasing market shares over long periods of time so they must be doing something right and you know they have some competitive advantage but what exactly is the competitive advantage right and we've been at we've been in the name i think for more than 5 years now and it's taken us a while as a team to really kind of get a good sense of what that moat is um it is a cost advantage it's uh, an intangible asset all of that is true but i mean if i have to explain it the trades person want to pick them because they have a vertically integrated supply chain so that means they're better at stocking um so as a trades person i'm worried less about the cost more about if something goes wrong can i go to the can i go to howden and get it fixed versus going to a home depot equivalent or a retailer equivalent who might or might not have the part and wouldn't really care about the success of the entire project right so there is very few alternatives who do the same thing well so that's part of the moat um uh it's but it doesn't end there it's it's actually there's there's a lot more to it um and and how we found that out was we started seeing that they were trying to expand in france okay so it's been a few years now they branched out into france but somehow they were not able to have the same level of success in france uh so initially you thought it's the french customer uh, maybe they're different but that wasn't the case the real answer to the uh, the puzzle was depot managers how they manage the depots uh, is extremely different from the competition so they incentivize their depot managers to be owners so as a depot manager you get a profit share and you make decisions on investing in your depot uh, which takes away from your profit share this year but could potentially increase revenues and profit share in the future right so it's a different mindset from a paid employee with a bonus it's almost an owner operator mindset in a decentralized fashion 
So if you have that structure, and that's a big part of why you're successful, uh, they're finding that they're not able to build those kind of, or find those depot managers in France, okay? And they've tried for a while, uh, and they're, the people that, that have trained under them in the UK, they don't want to move to France to do the same thing. Or at least, and even if they did with the language, they're not as successful in hiring and, and managing people. Um, it's in, and, and I mentioned this because it's, it's kind of in the back of my mind and then the team's mind recently is because they're expanding into Ireland and they're making the case that, hey, we have a lot of Irish people in our, uh, uh, in our payrolls now who, who are trained and experienced. We think they can go in and get this, you know, the snowball rolling in Ireland. So we'll see. But it's just fascinating because I can classify the mode quite well, but can I give them the growth rates in France or Italy that knowing the UK market is saturated uh, or are they done, right? So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting puzzle. So I feel like the bottom line is modes are super important. Uh, and as an investor, the edge comes from uh, trying to understand the boundary of the mode as much as, you know, just the mode itself, right? I think that's a really great example of how we have so much more flexibility as a, you know, as a buy side firm as Diamond Hill to interpret and deepen our understanding of competitive advantage. You know, Morningstar is publishing moat ratings. And so they need a framework that can kind of be applied in a more general way. Their business need to analyze moats is very different from ours. Um, and I think that that does give us a tremendous amount of flexibility. So like the, the framework in the book is a very helpful starting place, but it's definitely not the ending place if you, you know, if you're really making investment decisions on a daily basis. Yeah, maybe this, this would be a bit off topic, but I was thinking about it when you mentioned this. Um, I mean, when you move something that works in one region to another region, we have this. Uh, I'm, yeah, you're, you're familiar with the Swedish company IKEA. And there's a story where they tried to implement the beds that they had in Europe into, into the US and it failed because your beds are much bigger than, than here in Europe. You wanted king size and, and it fails. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> uh, I was thinking also about the, um, about the valuation side because everything is, is baked into evaluation in the end. But um, in fact, I mean, I think Morningstar has, uh, I mean, different scenarios based on future events um, that that they foresee, and uh, I think they have three values, like, like a, a bear case, a base case, and a bull case, or something something similar. That's that's the model we have at Red Eye, so it's it's a bit similar. Um, and do you use such a model at Diamond Hill, or um, I mean, how do you how do you work with? Uh, the scenarios there and, and how do you consider the concept of, uh, of black swans? So I would say, first of all, that we have, you know, as I was kind of mentioning philosophically, we have a much greater degree of flexibility at the analyst level than, you know, a firm like Morningstar can possibly provide its analyst team. And what that allows for us is that we can create scenarios and the number of scenarios can differ depending on the circumstance. So we don't have a framework where we require a bull case and a bear case, for example. Um, but what we do is we really think about what are the possible 
um, outcomes for this business? And how do we factor that into an intrinsic value that we can communicate effectively to multiple portfolio managers? Um, you know, in Krishna's case, on the international team, it is a very tight knit team. But on our domestic equity team, we have about 20 analysts communicating with about uh, 10 portfolio managers. And so that means that there's there's constantly, you know, different portfolio managers with incrementally um, different perspectives on businesses and industries and things like that. And so uh, making sure that we kind of have the right framework, depending on the industry and the company, gives us greater flexibility. I will say, though, um, I, I definitely distinguish, and I think you would as well, between scenario analysis and sensitivity analysis. And so we do have kind of a built-in sensitivity analysis where we're looking at, you know, what is a different discount rate or what does a different exit multiple mean for our valuation for this business? And that we do very consistently um, because it just gives more comparative comparability on something that, you know, none of us ever really will know the answer to. So, um, but, but scenarios, I would say we have a very flexible approach. So, um, also Heather, you have several funds and, and you mentioned that the analysts have, uh, have a lot of flexibility. Um, but do you have like an overall strategy on how to beat the market in Diamond Hill? Yes, our overall like philosophical approach to investing is very is exactly what Krishna has been describing. So we believe in uh, taking a long term perspective, understanding the fundamentals of the business. We want to be long term holders of the businesses that we own. And um, so we're always looking for businesses that may have a competitive advantage that are trading at a discount to intrinsic value or where we can buy them with a margin of safety relative to what we think they're worth. So that is a consistent theme that runs across all of our equity portfolios. And then even um, on the fixed income side, where uh, intrinsic value is not exactly applicable, um, we still take a long-term perspective. We hold a lot of the underlying bonds that we hold to maturity, and we take into consideration um, the, the, what we believe to be the valuation or reasonable valuation for the bond, even though, even though intrinsic value is not exactly um, applicable. Yeah, I can maybe, I mean, uh, add to that uh, both uh, uh, the philosophy question and, and tie it into valuation as well. I, I think the, uh, the, the first question uh, or the place to start would be to ask the question, do I want to own a piece of this business for a very, very long time, right? Do I want to place some of my client business in this money run by this management team and do I feel comfortable leaving it in there for a long time? So that's the starting point because that question will eliminate your a lot of you know quote unquote opportunities that pop up you know like the latest hot IPO or uh, the newest minted crypto coin or whatever it is right. All of those, uh, the minute you realize you're not in there for the short term, you're not in there because you think the stock price is moving up. Uh, that eliminates a lot of the stuff and, and it simplifies your thinking. Um, if my money can stay in there for a long time, then I don't even have to consider it. Right? Problem solved, right? So you get through that hurdle uh, before then you get to curating what is the best of the best investments that I can invest in. It also depends which investors you have and that they have like the staying power and don't uh, withdraw yeah, funds at the worst been, time. Yeah, uh, I very lucky over the years. Uh, um, you know, during different crises, uh, I remember... Uh, 2008, uh, I was told this, that a lot of the clients stuck with us, even when, you know, there was a 30, 40% drawdown in the markets. And again, during COVID, we saw net inflows. Uh, so it's 
uh, I, I think we're, we're grateful for the clients that we've been able to build together. And I think it's been uh, a, a sort of a concerted effort from the management team to focus on the right kind of clients as well. Um, so that's certainly been true in in recent years. I mean, I've only been with Diamond Hill for two years, so that's all I can really speak to. But it has been um, a very purposeful effort to cultivate long-term relationships with our clients and to make sure that when someone invests with us, that we're philosophically aligned about having a really long-term perspective. And that that means that we will perform differently than the market. And that means sometimes we'll perform worse than the market over shorter periods of time. And we really try to partner with clients who can take a full market cycle perspective. Now, we all know a full market cycle has been a hard thing to find in the last 10 to 15 years. So that is, you know, that has presented its own challenges. But um, but overall, that the partnership with kind of people who also have a long-term perspective when they're making their investment decisions has been a critical component of how we've built our business. Yeah, I guess it comes down to trust at the end. And for an investment manager, it's always the challenge of uh, career risk and how much are you able to deviate from, from index. But it seems like you have a good approach and a lot of flexibility there. Absolutely. I would say we do not... Um, we do not want any of our investors thinking about an index when they're making the decisions that they are making about which what to invest in or um you know we all of our portfolios are very highly concentrated compared to competitor portfolios compared to you know things that are indexes that we might be compared to by ourselves or our clients for benchmarking purposes and things like that um and that's very intentional so yeah. So here at Red Eye, we uh, are a Nordic and a Swedish based, but a Nordic focused uh, when we look at different companies. And we have about 150 companies under coverage. They're mostly the tech and uh, life science business. But uh, we saw that uh, your fund, Krishna, you have one, uh, one Nordic company, Asa Abloy, which is uh, represented 2% of the fund, at least at the uh, end of June. So, so, so we are a bit curious what your view is about like on the Nordic sector. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's such a coincidence because the, the, exactly when we started this recording, there's a Asa Abloy has a call because they announced a <clears throat> announced an acquisition in the U.S. Um, <clears throat> we'll talk about that too. I, I, that's some, that's what I, I have to work on when I go go when I finish this podcast. But <laughs> it's all about priorities. <laughs> yeah, you. Uh, I mean, you know the company well. It's 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 definitely not a thesis on the Nordics. Uh, it's a global company. Um, in fact, we haven't really done much work uh, in the Nordics recently. Uh, probably worth testing up our uh, old notes. Uh, I used to follow the insurance sector there and keep looking for cheap stocks. I remember Sampo, the insurance company, uh, uh, was one of the most... I, I, I remember uh, Bjorn Walrus. Uh, he was yeah. the CEO in uh, 10, 11, 12, you know, that time frame. He's one of the most interesting speakers I've met. I, I think I've heard him speak many times. It's a great insurance market. The problem is you rarely find stocks cheap <laughs> there, uh, but yeah, always worth looking. Um, uh, going back to Asa Abloy, you know, you have the global moat uh, that comes from scale, uh, right? You can uh, They can invest more in R&D, uh, in M&A, have a bigger sales force. They offer a comprehensive solution for both, uh, you know, retail and, uh, um, and commercial. In fact, uh, just today, they announced uh, that they're buying their second uh, largest competitor in the in the U.S. on the retail side, which uh, the market apparently really likes. Uh, uh, 
those are big advantages that um, the largest player in a highly and in a still highly fragmented market enjoys right so they can compound that advantage over long periods of time um, i think uh, over the last 5 years they've spent three times as much on r&d as uh, the number two player domacaba uh, i mean these are all a collection of little things that kind of indicate to you the power that you you have over time and they the market is still so fragmented that they're so far away being con- uh, from being considered a monopoly or anything like that so um <clears throat> that's the global that's the global case right but there's also another part to it it's uh, um it's the local scale you know i think uh, uh, close to two thirds of their revenues come from the aftermarket and aftermarket is typically a local scale game so you need to have um uh, you need to build uh, scale market by market so there is a global uh, scale to it but there is a local angle to it and and you see that in a lot of other businesses too uh, uh unilever is a portfolio holding uh, they have you know a large stable of billion dollar brands so everybody's heard the brands uh, unilever brands but you go to indonesia or india people think of these as local brands you know hindustan unilever is an indian company and that's that's how those brands are perceived and you might think of uh, dove as a global brand but lifebuoy is an indian brand so that uh, advantage is actually extremely hard to build uh, and so when you have that i think the trick is to value it appropriately and uh, and that's really the case for us at boy I also wanted to ask you about the piece you wrote on uh, meme stocks back in July uh, where you described that you bought uh, BlackBerry in December 2020 and then uh, in a way won the lottery when it became part of the meme stock hype. Um I'm curious to know how you took advantage of the situation and and more in general how you minimized the risk of thinking there may be something I'm missing when a when a stock price goes that quickly. Uh yeah I think I think the the short answer is it's all about intrinsic value estimates right uh and to some extent uh, uh also having a sense of uh, to to your earlier question on scenarios and the sensitivity having a sense having an intrinsic value estimate and, ha- and having a clear sense of the upper ranges of what something could be worth and once you know that clearly in your head it's a lot easier to manage i'm not saying it's easy to manage but it's a lot easier to manage because if you didn't have that if you didn't know the value of something and something is going up 30% 40% every day you it is just extremely hard to to react uh i think the whole blackberry situation for us is very interesting and it's it's a learning experience for us and so there's probably more lessons than just uh, you know in staying disciplined to intrinsic value estimate we're still processing it at uh it became a meme stock as you noted but it used to be a deep value stock for a very long time <clears throat> in fact you would call it a value trap right like uh, and and we knew of this stock second hand because we are invested and we have been invested in a, a canadian insurance company called fairfax which uh, is run by prem watsa you know it's again a very value a lot of value people know the the thesis and the stock and they had bought uh, blackberry or 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 got you know majority ownership in blackberry as early as 2012 or 13 when you know pretty much <clears throat> with uh, iOS and android blackberry was uh, was an also ran right like it was really not in contention so they got blackberry for very very cheap for a long time they 
they it's been a eight year turnaround uh, in kind of trying to extract the ip out of blackberry and sort of turning it into a software company from a handset hardware company right so it's been a long long journey and we uh, know of it simply because you know premats has uh, uh, you know quarterly calls and the annual reports he always has a paragraph on it he already talks about it um so when uh, one of our analysts he started working on it uh, uh, chris peelers analyst he it was a well known idea to us and i was able to contribute to it the rest of the team uh, was able to contribute to it uh, and it, the timing was just uh, fortuitous but we kind of know what the valuation is we kind of know what the upper limit on the valuation is um so when the stock went 10% 20% over that it was kind of easy to exit uh, uh overall is an amazing experience to go through for the team because well conceptually we all are in agreement with what we do and we've been able to do that well in normal times right over extended periods it's still good to know that we can do it when things are crazy on a you know like on an hourly basis right uh, and as you mentioned there's always a uh, this fear of missing out or not knowing what we could be missing you know because when things are going well you kind of think that uh and i think it's also a lesson on mr market and and the moods of the market how that could change uh, something could be dead in the water for 8 years and then suddenly like rise up it it happens so it's uh, there's probably more lessons there I, i'm not i i still haven't processed it enough. just to follow up on that did you did you sell the full position or did you keep part of the position uh so what we uh so what we did was we had a, a sizable position going in uh and we trimmed it down to a bare minimum when it uh, uh when um it went above our estimates and that's something that we've been playing around with as a team as well you know all the analysts contribute uh, and have a say in, uh, in what they think and sometimes with some of these names when there's too much volatility uh it just psychologically it's it's easier for us to have a little bit of a position in there because we know we want to build a big position and our mindset is over a long period of time blackberry is an interesting stock it's just that at these prices there is not right so i don't know if it you know numerically makes any difference having 50 basis points in there but it just psychologically it helps us give us gives us continuity with the position um, no no scientific reason for doing it yeah this is something we discuss a lot here like when to sell and should you trim or should you just sit through and let the stock run and trust the management that they will do good things and it comes back to capital allocation i guess yeah and i think when uh, when the moves are really that crazy i i we don't i mean if it's a high quality uh, compounder kind of stock and it's a little overvalued that's a different decision but uh, if it if it's clear that there is uh, you know froth and hype around it then uh, over 10% over our estimates our upper end estimates i don't i think the discipline should be to exit for us at least yeah definitely so when we come back to the moats and uh, one part is also the the trends how the moat is increasing or decreasing and how that process works um, something that i have been feeling more and more is that like innovation and digitalization is really like increasing the substitutes for different products it's harder to keep them out and what's your thoughts about that and how do you really like track the competitive landscape we talked a little bit about it um yeah i think uh, it's uh, i mean i guess it, to to some extent i would say it is 
uh, it relates to your um, capital allocation slash management question because you know moats are moats are not final right moats are evolving uh, there are limits to the moat and, and you know as you say the landscape is always changing and it seems like the landscape landscape is changing faster um, over um, more recently with technology right so a lot of the traditional quote unquote old school businesses um i would say a couple of things there the first thing is uh and i think this is a bezos quote as well is that uh you can ask about what is changing a lot but the more interesting question is what is staying constant right so if you can find businesses where you think things are on balance more likely to stay constant rather than change that has additional value in the portfolio right so that's one lens of thinking about uh, this because it's not always easy to predict change when it is hard to predict change it's uh, um so the, the bigger question to ask is a what is uh, staying constant constant that i can hang my hat on and b what is management doing about change right so um it is and and you go to the second question it's extremely hard i think from the outside to to judge what management is doing it's very easy to get carried away one way or the other um and and a lot of times i think i think diageo probably is my you know my favorite example because diageo is a quintessentially british company right you think diageo you think they own the largest collection of scotch whiskey brands you, you think diageo you think scotch the the history is also fascinating right it shows how much uh, you know similar to kind of berkshire hathaway how much wealth can be created uh, over long periods of time when a management invests appropriately right and this is like multiple centuries of of uh, doing it you can trace the company's origins all the way back to 1749 right to the jnb blend uh, the jnb brand it's a blend, blended scotch whiskey brand and then of course johnny walker comes in in 1819 and that itself is more than 200 years ago now so very very long time ago very local british firm but look at the firm today right only 6% of revenues come from their home market so it's as much it, it's a global brand it's a power it's a spirits powerhouse all of that's been created over this time and you can't argue things haven't changed over that time and there's been like two world wars and you know how many other events what has sustained that brand right uh, then you look at it today and say hey uh, even 2 years ago diageo uh, paid i think a billion dollars you know an insane amount of money to buy casamigos which is uh, uh, george clooney's uh, tequila brand and everybody was super negative on it and i was like hmm, that's that seems like super expensive for a you know like for a nascent tequila brand uh, but two years hence uh, i think there was like 85% growth in casamigos last year and something like 125% growth this year they from nowhere in tequila they've managed to establish uh, a position in the us tequila market you know like and it's about 8% of their revenues now so from the outside you can look at these decisions and say hey uh, it's it seems expensive but you know over time you have to kind of give management the benefit of the doubt especially when they come from a culture like that of real long term history uh, of uh, of investing appropriately 
Uh, and I think that's some uh, that's maybe a learning over time is that you know give management a longer leash, especially. Uh, I, I guess I'll put it this way: first, make a call, really understand management and their history, and once once you made the call, give them a little more leash on on what they're doing. So it doesn't directly. Uh, it, it's not easy, so it doesn't answer your question directly. But it's 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 more subtle. I feel like you know uh, of of how you worry about more trends and worry about what management is thinking. And, yeah, and this is still your biggest position in the fund, right? Yeah, as of the last disclosed. Yeah, and how, but you you said a, like you can pay a high valuation. What what would that be like? How is it? Trading currently, uh, uh, I think from a valuation perspective, it is not cheap, uh, but it is. Uh, it's. I mean, personally, I don't think it's super expensive uh, either. You know, given uh, the quality of the firm, uh, and to your point, if if you value sustainability, uh, if you value, I mean, what am I more likely to predict? Um, <clears throat> Revenues for Diageo. Am I more likely to be right in predicting revenues for Diageo, or maybe some other company in the in my portfolio? I'd say Diageo is probably one of the is up in the list. Conviction, I hear. Yeah. Actually, uh, there's a. I mean, just from having studied this in the past, there's a huge correlation between an analyst's ability to predict a intrinsic value um, successfully and a company having a wide moat. You know, the wider the moat, the more clear the competitive advantage, the easier it is to predict what the future cash flows will look like. And I think that's all very intuitive. But Morningstar has done some some studies around that too, so they they can prove it um, as as being true as well. Right, and related to that, uh, I was a bit curious on uh, pricing power because that's also an important element. How much do you think about that when you invest? Yeah, pro- see, pricing power is is everything right it's a uh, in fact uh, I'll, I'll flip it around i i uh, i've learned to appreciate places where the company is not exercising pricing power but it has it uh, i think the big example is tsmc uh, <clears throat> tsmc is the global uh, foundry leader and um, <clears throat> a caveat to that is recently they announced price increases so i'll, I'll leave that out of the picture but they're essentially a monopoly in the space uh, and the biggest advantage for them is they have been extremely um, diligent about not passing on too much of their cost increases to clients. In fact, making the client experience better every day, you know, sort of the Amazon model, right? Uh, uh, faster, cheaper, wider selection, you know, that kind of mindset. Uh, when you have those kind of shared economies and your intrinsic cost structure is falling over time, right? You have even more of a more you, you you create even more of a mode by pricing lower, right? Uh, it doesn't, you're already making significantly high gross margins. Why, why, uh, you know, why not use the opportunity to enhance your mode? You know, those kind of situations are rare. You know, Costco is a big example of that. Uh, but I think that's a great example, too, of just having a different time horizon. And, you know, similar to the way we think about investing with a different time horizon, I think as um, when you can find management teams that have a truly long time horizon in the way they run their business and that they're incentivized to have a longer perspective, I think that leads to better decision making on things like when to um, when to hold back on the pricing power you have. 
And I think pricing power too is kind of a an example or an outcome of a source of competitive advantage, right? Like it's pricing power in and of itself can't um, explain, but it can be a piece of evidence that leads you to dig deeper to say, well, what is it about this company's business that gives it pricing power? Yeah. And another way to look at it is to look at the companies that have no pricing power and then see, okay, who are they in touch with? Those companies definitely have pricing power. Yes, absolutely. I was also thinking, Krishna, you mentioned uh, Fairfax. And uh, I think they are an example of, uh, I mean, when you when you discuss uh, the role of capital allocators, you typically speak about businesses that, um, I mean, are yeah, similar to Fairfax, where they have many different uh, companies in the group. And the ones that are earning money sends, sends the excess profits to the headquarters for them to allocate it to to new interesting opportunities. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking, how do you assess a, a good capital allocator? Uh, yeah, like, like I said, it's a, the, going back to the Biagio example, it's, uh, it is extremely hard to do uh, looking ahead. And I think the history is very, very important. And, and you mentioned Fairfax, so I'll, I'll use that. Uh, I'll use their history, right? I think uh, since 2008, uh, Prem has been wrong on a lot of his uh, investing bets. Uh, he's, uh, he's been famously predicting the market crash and uh, buying all these uh, deflation puts, and that's cost shareholders a lot. So, you know, that's kind of the time frame we decided to get into the stock because, uh, I mean, clear, it's clear that he's taken too many macro bets so um, his strength uh, has been building an insurance business. His strength has been investing in businesses, but not taking micro bets. So you could ask a legitimate question that is his capital allocation skills, is he, is he playing in a, uh, has he deviated, right? Uh, is there style drift? Um, but despite that, right? You, you look at the long arc and say, hey, I will give him some leash because he's the kind of person who corrects, right? He makes a mistake and he corrects over time. Uh, and of course, valuations provided a lot of support because at the same time that the, the investing side was struggling because of his mishaps, he'd done such a good job on the insurance side by hiring the right people. He'd realized the mistake that he'd uh, made maybe in the late 90s when he was buying really bad insurance businesses and trying to turn them around, he'd figured out that that doesn't work. Uh, you know, you, when in insurance and uh, you want to buy good insurance businesses because insurance is a lot about culture and people. Uh, it's extremely hard to turn around a bad insurance book, especially if it's a long duration book. So he had figured it out and then he'd started buying better insurance companies and the in underwriting track record in by the time we got to 2010, had turned to really, really good, like, you know, consistent, positive, I mean, profitable uh, underwriting, um, you know, low combined ratios, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so you're saying, okay, it's a, it's a mixed bag, but let's look at the history of value creation here and look at what you're getting, uh, what you're getting for nothing more than paying book value, right? So it's, it's a, I think it's always a mix of questions. I can't just stand up here and say, hey, he's ultimate, the ultimate capital allocator. He's not. He's made mistakes on both sides, but he's a learning machine 
and he's created this team that is extremely, uh, I, I guess what the word is, extremely value-minded. So I've been to their offices in Toronto and it is not what you would expect. It's like this, uh, these plastic tables, uh, you know, with the, the old school phones and uh, they are super kind and nice and they offer you water and the water is not, you know, bottled water or Perrier. It's like water that comes from, uh, you know, they just go and fill water in a cup for you. You know, like that mindset, it's still there and they're like, you know, they're, they're worth billions. So there's no reason why they should do it, but it's essentially keeping costs low and doing what they do and trying to get better. So the same mindset that you want in a capital allocator. Right? Um, and that's about as much assurance I can give. I, can, I can't say that his next bet is going to be correct or not. Right. So uh, talking about corporate culture, Heather, you're a leader of Diamond Hill. Uh, how are you using the Moat framework to build like moats or even wide moats and competitive advantages in, in the firm? You have 30 billion US dollars under assets under management, right? Yep. Uh, so we spend a lot of time thinking about what our competitive advantages are and how we can make investments in the business that will help us enhance our competitive advantages. And, um, you know, in, investment management is kind of an interesting industry when it comes to thinking about competitive advantage. Um, and so, you know, when I take a step back and really think about where I think we as a business have the ability to really differentiate ourselves. Um, culture is definitely one of those areas where, you know, we need to have a long-term mindset that really imbues everything we do. And so even though we're a publicly traded company, for example, we don't have quarterly earnings calls because we feel like having, while we value transparency and we know investors value it and we try to be as transparent as possible in writing, we believe quarterly earnings calls lead to management teams inherently having to fight against the urge to think think quarterly in terms of how you're delivering. And we don't ever want that pressure to come into our business. Um, so that's one example. And I mean, a lot of investment managers are not publicly traded, so they don't have that pressure at all. Um, and our, our being publicly traded is kind of a um, just a, a quirk of our history <laughs> as opposed to an intentional decision that was made or anything like that. Um, another thing I would bring up too from a, um, a competitive advantage standpoint is that we have made some decisions as a business that have, um, I think, allowed us to partner with our clients in a way that in other investment managers might like to do theoretically, but are restricted from doing because they have not been set up that way originally. And one of those examples would be that we are very focused on capacity constraints. We would rather constrain capacity to make sure that our clients have a great um, experience and investing outcome than to, um, you know, to cave to the pressure that so many investment managers face where the more assets you manage, the more revenue you generate. And so um, I think that constraining capacity actually has two elements of competitive advantage for us. One is that it should lead to better returns over time for our clients. So that should lead to um, you know, more loyal clients who have a better experience, et cetera. But the other element of it is that it actually requires us to think very innovatively. If we would like to grow as a firm, and I do think at a minimum, a growth mindset is really important to a successful firm, that um, we need to we need to constantly be thinking about how else can we solve our invest our clients' um, investment needs. You know, what other capabilities might we be able to bring to the market 
with, you know, our unique lens and our unique competitive advantage. And so that, that kind of innovative mindset, I think, is, is unfortunately unusual in our industry. And I think um, a capacity constrained mentality actually really enforces that for us. Um, another thing I'd mention too, is that um, we are very particular in restricting our employees from investing outside of um, the investing that we're doing for our clients. And the the challenge in that, of course, is that we hire lots of people who want to do nothing other than investing. And so they'd like to be able to frequently invest on their own as well as invest for our clients. But that does create an inherent challenge and conflict that we believe cannot be appropriately mitigated without asking our employees when they join the firm to commit to basically investing for our clients. And we all benefit from that because we all are clients as well. You know, we can invest in our own capabilities and we can benefit from all of our investing acumen that way. But what we do not allow is for our investment team or anyone else in our company to invest on the side in a way that conflicts with decisions that we are making for our clients. And um, we're, our policies on that are a lot more strict than most firms. And I think if other firms in the industry wanted to try to copy that, they would have a very challenging um, uphill battle to try to convince people who currently have some freedom or autonomy to invest separately to give up those those freedoms. But with Diamond Hill, we, we just ask that commitment from the day somebody joins the firm. So it's not ever had to be something that we've asked someone to change. It's just, it's been kind of a foundation of how we built the culture with a client first mentality. So I, I think there are more, but but the interesting thing is what I'm telling you, you cannot easily put into any of the moat sources in Morningstar's book, right? And so it kind of goes to Krishna's point from before that I think when you really get into the intricacies of understanding businesses, you know, I, I could pigeonhole us into a moat source or two if I really had to, but ultimately it's so much deeper and more nuanced than that. So maybe there needs to be more categories than those five sources. Maybe. <laughs> We can recommend that to yeah, Morningstar. It's like that mental model. The map is not the territory. So it's, I mean, in reality, it's it's uh, difficult. But I mean, we use models in order to make it a bit easier. Um, I was also thinking, Heather, I mean, how do you manage your days in order to make maybe, I mean, you want to widen the moat as much as possible. And that's, that's I guess, your main focus. But uh, how do you manage your days in line with that? Well, I would say um, I try to spend, I, I don't really manage my days in this way, but I would say on a weekly basis, I try to make sure I'm spending a reasonable proportion of my time thinking about and working with our clients um, and really understanding the client experience. We spend a lot of time um, really making sure that the partnerships that we have with our clients are as long-term as possible, as we talked a little bit about before. And that requires a real commitment. Um, so for example, you know, during this pandemic, I the timing of when I, as a new CEO, might have gone out to meet with our clients in person, I could not do that. And so instead, I had phone calls, Zoom calls with um, many of our clients. And it is so interesting to me how many of them expressed that they had never heard from the CEO of an asset manager that they'd partnered with before. And um, and so that's just an example, I think, of where, you know, this client first mentality really ends up embedding itself in our culture and the way we behave on a daily basis and even the way I as the CEO behave. Um, and then the second thing I would say I am very focused on is our um, our employees and our colleagues. So um, I try I'm actually 
about two thirds of the way through meeting with every single employee on a one on one basis, um, some over Zoom, some in person, depending on people's comfort level and things like that. But I really try to stay connected to every employee because I think that we are in we are in a people business and our assets do walk out the door every day. And so making sure that everyone feels that they're part of a positive, um, supportive culture that is, you know, has a, a purpose that they want to be part of, I think is just a really, really important part of what I do as the CEO. And then the third category, I would say, of how I spend my time, I kind of put into um, strategy um, and kind of thinking about well, where where is this firm going over the next five to 10 years? What else can we do when we're partnering with our clients? How else can we make sure that we are um, a great place that talent would love to come and work? And so um, that's it's kind of in that category that I would say our shareholders ultimately end up benefiting. But because we take such a long-term perspective, um, we really try to cultivate a long, long-term shareholder base as well. And so I talk to our shareholders infrequently, I would say um, highly infrequently. <laughs> um, we do have an annual shareholder meeting that we publish on our website. And um, I'd say you know, we, we publish it now because it's been on Zoom for the last two years, but hopefully eventually we'll be able to go back to holding that in person. But I, I really think once a year is enough in terms of, um, you know, communicating with a truly long-term shareholder base. Sounds like Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> yes, that is a, that is a not entirely an accident. You know, Morningstar, also a public company, they also don't do quarterly earnings calls. So I would say there's, you know, and, and Morningstar has definitely been kind of built on a foundation of uh, love and respect for Buffett. <laughs> So there's there's some common themes running through that and my background and who I've learned from um, in my in my past as well. Yeah, uh, Krishna, do you have like a specific way your days are structured, or is it a bit everything? What happens if Asa Bloy buys a company? You do that, or do you have yeah, some kind I, of habits? I, like, yeah, and I want to say that's the biggest luxury in this job is uh, um, most of the week is unscheduled um, when I'm not traveling and. Uh, I like to travel a lot on work and meet companies, but that's, you know, it's become Zoom meetings now. So uh, waiting for the day when I can do that. So do you feel like it's a big change not not meeting the companies uh, like um, physically? I think we're getting a lot of access to management teams. What I miss is uh, meeting fellow investors, right? So to get the, you know, kind of like the, uh, the gray point talk on what people are thinking and just build those relationships because they are very helpful uh, if you find like-minded investors uh, in just kind of learning things that you know you might have missed and and it's a uh, to my earlier point on information filter I, I want information to come from certain people and they're worth a lot more than you know, from other people that's that, that sort of thing but yeah yeah in terms of access we get a lot of access so that's uh, we're thankful for that um, yeah, but otherwise the, the schedule is not very Busy. Yeah, it's a uh, uh, you know it's during earnings season. There are a few more. Uh, I like to listen to every uh, earnings call uh, or at least a transcript. So and and that of the the competitors as well uh, of the companies that we invest in. So that tends to be busier. But uh, by design, we want to keep it uh, open uh, so that you just have more more time and you're more relaxed uh, to to do new work. And especially the period between earnings season is really the fun period when you can start looking at new things uh, outside the portfolio. So, yeah, it's pretty open. 
Right. And this being a book podcast, we're also curious to hear like how much do you, how much time do you spend reading in a typical day? Uh, um, me personally, I, I think that's what that's the only thing I do. I think my <laughs> kids think I get paid to read. So. <laughs> and what do you read more than more than ten k's? So, I mean, I try to, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I, I read books all the time and uh, I'm, uh, it's, uh, it's annual reports, cell-side research, it's, uh, it's uh, usually I'm trying to figure out something about, uh, usually have one project going. So right now I have a project on Poland, which is a country I'm trying to understand. So I'm reading a book called uh, A Country in the Moon by Michael Moran, which is a it's about, I think, 10, 15 years old. It's a, it's a travel book about Poland. Uh, Poland is a fascinating country. It's a, and, and, and I knew nothing about the history. So, uh, I mean, in general, I would say travel books are underrated. Uh, there are so few of them. And the good ones, they, they kind of bring out both the history and the geography of a place using real characters right like so those kind of books are really i mean i could probably get all that information from wikipedia and from google and from other drier books but this is a much more fun way of understanding poland um i would say it's a it's interesting as a country because over the last 20 30 years since communism it seems to be coming out of the uh, communist shell while still retaining some of the inefficiencies and the bureaucracies of communism, a very young uh, and highly educated population, especially in tech. So that combination just looks interesting. We don't have ideas per se, but it just seems like um, the, there is potential for moats there, right? And uh, and this is another interesting point on moats. Uh, I find that moats in smaller uh, I mean, I mentioned moats are created locally. Moats in smaller geographies tend to be stickier for longer. Um, there is just not that uh, level of competition. And once a moat is established and you kind of understand what it is, there could be a long runway for that moat. Uh, but of course, you have to go carefully because the markets are new to you and you have to really understand where it's coming from. So, And the question is also how much can they grow if they're very have very good presence in one country, but that country is not huge, and then they want to expand. And yeah, and Poland, for example, right? It's a, one other interesting thing about Poland is it's it's for a country in Europe, uh, it's predominantly uh, a rural country, so that uh, that can create some moats too. So you know, depending on the sector, uh, does that give you a longer runway in certain businesses, etc.? So you start thinking along that line. And what about you, Heather? How how much are you reading in a typical day? Um, I would say a typical day, I am not reading much more than articles or things that, um, you know, have kind of come up on a more timely basis. But again, in a typical week, I, I read probably a book a week. Um, I love reading. I feel like some of my greatest, deepest insights come from reading. And, um, you know, I've sort of moved my my reading repertoire to be more focused on books that are kind of about, um, you know, building great cultures and leadership and things like that, that I think makes sense given my current role. Um, and we also have started having kind of a book club within Diamond Hill where we'll all read a book together and then have a discussion on it. 
um, that we invite the whole company to participate in if they're interested in. Um, I think it was probably maybe even a year ago now, we read a book called Unleashed that uh, was excellent, really great book. Um, it has a long subtitle that I could send you because I know there's some other books called Unleashed, so it can get confused with some other books. But We'll put that um, in the show it notes. Was, yeah, it was just an amazing um, kind of examination of different elements of building an inclusive culture that I just thought was a super powerful book. And then recently as a firm, we also read Annie Duke's book, How to Decide. Um, so I'm sure you've come across that. I think it has great applicability for investing decisions and business decisions and so much of life. Um, so it's it's funny, like we kind of had a, a funny discussion about how it doesn't feel like the best written book because it sort of makes you work and it is, you know, organized kind of there's a lot of quizzes and things in it. But I think everyone um, who read it and participated in the discussion found some really useful insights in it. Um, which is really the point, right? It's ultimately, if you get two great insights from a book, then it's a huge success in my mind. Um, so I'm currently reading a book called Grow the Pie that was recommended to me by one of our portfolio managers and is really about um, more of a, a purpose-driven mindset and multi-stakeholder mindset um, in managing companies and how, how companies think about their, uh, their purpose. So... Nice. Uh, Krishna, do you have any like investment related book that has really influenced you in your career? Oh, I mean, there's, uh, I, I don't know where to start. I mean, there's like tons and tons of books. I think uh, the number one, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, I started with this book called uh, uh, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius by Greenblatt. Uh, you know, like, uh, it's, it's a sort of a ridiculously titled book, but uh, it is uh, probably influenced my thinking for a long time that uh, um, but I, I mean since then I've, I think I've pretty much read the entire gamut of books and um, starting from intelligent investor um, it's security analysis but what I got from some of those older books uh, was was not really I mean it usually the lessons I got were probably different from uh, like security exam analysis for example I didn't care for any of those analysis on railroads and, and all of that. It's it's more like the history of the time and what uh, he was going through and um, uh, his uh, Ben Graham's understanding that at the end of the day, what really matters is being able to invest through the cycle rather than great ideas, right? Like he went through the crisis in 29 and the people who did well were the people who had excess cash, invest you know those kind of learnings kind of stick with you rather than the details of some of these books i think it was interesting heather when you mentioned danny duke's uh, book and uh, that it leads to action and that i agree i mean really when you read a book um, it's an active journey it's not passive many many people like read read books passively but then i i think you miss the learning piece actually it's about do you, do you read for fun or do you read for learning? I have two teenage sons. And so I've decided that um, this year, because both of them tend toward math and science as their area of strength, that I'm going to read uh, for my fiction contribution to my life. I'm going to read the books that they have to read for school because I don't know how else to help them when they when you know, when you get to the teenage years, um, it's, I, I just don't think I'll be able to help them with their homework um, effectively if I haven't read the books. So I, my reading list will be changing dramatically. 
<laughs> That's good motivation. I feel like we could talk about uh, books and investing and uh, moats forever, but uh, we need to cut here. <laughs> we are very thankful that you came on the show, Heather Brilliant and Krishna Mohanrai from Diamond Hill. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, guys. It was fun. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. You can follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve the podcast, we really appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. For the editing of this podcast, we thank Jon Hintze and for the graphic design, Jesper Viking. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.